You're listening to the ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Hello, please let me see your ticket stubs for the Double Edge Double Bill. This week, Jack Nicholson flew over the Wolf Nest. Each week, Adam Thomas and Thomas Mariani will come to the table to discuss the randomly selected yin and yang of a double feature. Then both will have to pick a number between 1 and 10 in order to seal their fates for the next episode. When we'll have two good movies, the other two bad ones. Let the chaos begin. And I am Thomas Mariani, back here again with who? I'm Adam Thomas, and it feels like it's been so long since we've so, done this. So, uh, welcome back, everybody. Um, in case you don't follow like our social media things or... You're not a subscriber to our Patreon or saw the little free audio bit that we put out on the Patreon feed. A lot of things happened and uh, that made us uh, have a bit of a delay between our last episode was the Gangsters episode. And um, we've released a Patreon episode since then. We were going to record this episode around that same time. Uh, but there were initially some delays, just like some family stuff. And then my laptop, the laptop, mind you, that we've recorded and edited every single episode of the show prior to this on, uh, decided, no, nah, I'm good. I'm done. Um, yep. So I had to wait for a new laptop to come in, and given just COVID craziness, uh, that was delayed for quite a bit, until uh, we finally got this new laptop in just today, and we are ready and rearing to record this episode. Are you glad to be back, Adam, in the saddle? No, not really. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah, of course, man. You know, it, it felt a little odd, like it was... It was a total vacation, but not in a vacation. I, I don't know how to describe it. Like, I'm so used to, you know, once a week talking to you. And then it's like, I don't hear your dulcet tones. So I just don't know what's going on anymore. <laughs> it's okay. I'm back. I'm here, buddy. And I'm not going anywhere until, I don't know, some other horrible thing happens that delays us again. But... We're planning on keeping the schedule regular for the foreseeable future here, and uh, we're going to record this particular episode, which was chosen by our patrons out there um, as a poll. Uh, we'll get to talking a bit more about the Patreon at the end of the episode, uh, but they chose uh, between two Titan actors. Um, one we've talked about a bit before, Robert De Niro, was one of the choices on the poll, and the other choice was Jack Nicholson, who we've never talked about somehow in the entire history of our show. Not one Jack Nicholson movie until this episode, which is crazy. That is a little nuts, dude. Especially because De Niro has been mentioned on the show in a couple episodes, at least two. Yeah, weird. Jack Nicholson, I mean, he's an icon. Doing the research for this episode and really thinking about it, I've considered Jack Nicholson to be like the quintessential 20th century actor. It's like I watched a lot of his, especially earlier movies, um, in preparation for this show. And uh, whenever you see Jack Nicholson in sort of like any sort of 20th century era set film, whether it be like all the way back, like an Ironweed, you know, Chinatown, or like something even as late in his career as like the, the Departed and some of the other stuff, he feels so perfect for like any sort of 20th century set story to the point where if you see him in something that was set beforehand, it doesn't work. Like I watched a lot of his older Western movies that he did when he was just starting, and it, he seems like a time traveler. He just doesn't fit any time before 1900 <laughs> no absolutely yeah he's never been like sort of a timeless sort of actor he he fits exactly in the area when he started getting popular seeing jack nicholson is in, in like you said in old westerns and stuff you're like no no even easy rider it just doesn't work for me as much well i think in easy rider he works just because he feels sort of like the onset of the 70s coming to destroy these guys anyway who are like free hippies of the late 60s. I think that's what kind of makes him work in that movie. I think even he also works in sort of like some of his weird roles, like if you've seen his early, early Roger Corman stuff, like of course, yeah. like Little Shop of Horrors, where he has this one scene. He just looks like a creep. Jack Nicholson is just kind of unnerving looking. And uh, the eyebrows, the smile, everything, he's just kind of intimidating at all times. I mean, it probably doesn't help, but I'm sure for the both of us, the first time we really were aware of Nicholson was like Batman, right? Joker when I knew who the name Jack Nicholson was, like, yeah, it was, it was Batman. 
Yeah, which is obviously such a strong impression with that movie, where when you're a little kid, he's very intimidating, and the older you grow, he's like, he's psychotic, but in a very much a, like, slightly darker version of the Cesar Romero Joker way, where he's still, like, very silly, very campy, but it, it fits sort of in this weird, like, Jack Nicholson's career has, like, two definitive stages. His start of his career through, like, at least the, the 70s all the way through, there's this, like, young, rebellious spirit. We'll be talking about one of those movies for sure with a good pick. That kind of fits that. And then around, like, I would say 1983 with, like, Terms of Endearment, that's where he settles into, oh, I'm getting middle-aged and fat, but you know I'm still hot. <laughs> it's like, okay, sure, yeah. you, you have that. Absolutely agree. It's interesting also because we haven't talked about Nicholson before, I guess, because a big part of it is he hasn't made a movie in about 10 years. Um, his last film was actually How Do You Know the Paul Rudd Owen Wilson, Reese Witherspoon vehicle. That was made by James L. Brooks, so obviously he worked with Nicholson a lot. I've never even heard of that movie. It's it's very forgettable, very bad, despite being extremely expensive. Um, he plays Paul Rudd's dad. Okay. That <laughs> <laughs> doesn't... It doesn't... No. Nope. Nope, I'm not seeing it. And, like, you still see him occasionally. Like, he'll be at an Oscar ceremony or he'll be at a Lakers game, obviously. Still um, showing up and, you know... Being ridiculous at Laker games. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I um, love there was um, an interview with, un- you know, unfortunately, the person is, but uh, Louis C.K. tried to get him to be on one of his shows. Um, he talked to Nicholson about trying to get him on, and he's like, Louis, I got your script, and I thought it was really good, and I really thought about doing it, but I was reading it while I was in a hammock. And I really liked being in that hammock. And I thought... I don't want to get up from this to do your show. So I'm fine. <laughs> hey, whatever. He's got that sort of power and pull where, I mean, he's, he's done so much where he doesn't have to work. Would you want to see him come back though for another movie? I mean, sure. I want to be against it. I guess it depends on the material and it depends on everything else. But I mean, I wouldn't be against Jack Nicholson coming back. It's not to me like a, uh, like if Sean Connery also didn't want to come back, I'd be like, Oh, really? Probably shouldn't do that. But, like, Jack Nicholson, yeah, I could see him coming back for another movie or two. Because he still seems to have that spry energy, and he even had it as his, like, career was waning out, like we mentioned, The Departed, which is such a phenomenal, like, villain turn. He still had a lot of that same energy he had even from, like, Joker about 20-something years prior to that. He, He still has this, like, intimidation, this menace to where he is kind of genuinely scary. But at the same time, he has this interesting kind of attractiveness that could get you to, like, be... Uh, sort of entranced by him as we'll definitely talk about with one of our other features which we should get to our two features uh at the end of our last episode ages ago we did our picking for our good and our bad pick as we usually do at the end of every episode and uh, we ended up getting from one of my choices the 1975 film one flew over the cuckoo's nest as our good movie and then our bad pick as chosen by adam was the 1994 movie wolf uh which two very interesting eras in his career to say the least uh but let's let's get into first our good feature the highly acclaimed one flew over the cuckoo's nest do you think there's anything wrong with your mind really not a thing doc you're gonna pull that hen house shit now i want that television set turned on right now i don't think he's overly psychotic no i want something I think he's dangerous. I mean, what do you think you are, for Christ's sake? Crazy or something? Well, you're not. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest uh, came out November 19th, 1975. It was directed by Milos Foreman, uh, based uh, on the novel by Ken Kesey, as well as there was a play adaptation by D.L. Wasserman. Um, and the movie was highly acclaimed, uh, still remains so to this day. At the time, it won the big five of the Academy Awards, uh, Best Picture, Director, Actor for Nicholson, Actress for Louise Fletcher, and Adapted Screenplay. Um, in addition to having some nominations for like Brad Dorff and Cinematography and Editing and Score. Um, and the major five wins uh, has only happened three times. Before Cuckoo's Nest, it happened, with, uh, it happened one night. And then after Cuckoo's Nest, it happened again with Silence of the Lambs. But it's never been done aside from those three times. Uh, and it holds a spot on the AFI Top 100, which we've done an episode on previously. It's number 33 currently on that list. And it was the second highest grossing movie in 1975, only beaten by Jaws. Jesus. Well, yeah, Jaws was just a whirlwind. So, I mean, if you're number two to Jaws, that's nothing to slouch about. 
to be fair, also being costing three million dollars, making one hundred sixty-three million in nineteen seventy-five is that's pretty amazing. <laughs> yes, yes, uh, but um, obviously this was one that I hadn't seen in quite a while. Uh, as I spoke about in the AFI episode, this was one of those movies I caught up with after hearing so much about it, being like, oh, one of the great acclaimed movies. Um, and at the time, I remember really loving it. And this time, I love it, but I think for completely different reasons than I did initially. I think a lot of my interesting sort of opinions have skewed on it more. But uh, Adam, as you mentioned at the end of our last episode, uh, this one really got to you at the time. And uh, does it still get to you now? Yeah. Yeah, it absolutely does. This is one that I went in completely blind knowing. It was my brother's, I think his ex-girlfriend's, something like that, like her favorite movie. So they're like, oh, you got to watch, you got to watch. I'm like, what the fuck? Okay, fine. So I sat down and watched it, and I was hooked, like line and sinker from the beginning to the end. And, I mean, I bawled like a baby, and I was depressed and everything. And that was the last time I seen it until watching it again, and that was probably in high school. So it's been a long time since I've seen this. So I watched it again, and uh, I I think I'm kind of on the same level with you. I still really love it. I, there is a couple things about it that I don't really, well, there's one main thing. It's not even a big thing that I don't really care for now, but I still love it for all the same reasons mostly and for new ones as well. Definitely. Yeah. I think the big thing watching it this time was like, obviously when I watched it back at the time, what I heard about it was like, oh man, there's like this great hero villain thing between McMurphy, who is Jack Nicholson's character, who if you're not familiar, um, is a guy who is uh, sent to prison for both assault and I forgot about statutory rape of a 15-year-old girl. I completely forgot about that until I rewatched it this time. Uh, Really fucked up. Um, But he um, tries to get out of going to prison again by pleading insanity. So he's going to spend 60 days in this uh, mental hospital under the care of Nurse Ratchet, um, as played by Louise Fletcher. And uh, he sort of ends up uh, commiserating with the uh, various inmates, which include like a sea of great character actors where you got... Christopher Lloyd, Danny DeVito, uh, Vincent Schiavelli, uh, Michael Berriman, he's even in there. We uh, end up seeing sort of especially a big sort of back and forth between him and Nurse Ratched, who sort of has a very cold demeanor. And that's what I knew about this movie. It's just like, oh man, their back and forth is so much like she's the most evil villain ever. He is such a great hero for the movie. And I remember thinking that around the time when I initially saw this. Now watching it, they so many more morally gray kind of like um, characters to me in a way that makes it so much more fascinating than it did, honestly, when I was younger. Because despite Nurse Ratch kind of being cold, I still find that she has mostly the best interest of these patients at heart. She just wants to also put them under the same kind of treatment of like these big therapy groups and kind of trying to treat every single patient the same, which is something that even McMurphy's doing. He's kind of trying to be like commiserating and be a buddy to all these people. And that works for some of them, like particularly the chief character who we'll talk about more but i think what's so great about the movies it sort of shows you like not every one of these patients should be treated the exact same way because they all have individual sort of mental um instability that would need specific attention and going full-on buddy buddy or being so cold but domineering neither attitude really works for all of them and i think that makes it so much more ahead of its time yeah i I definitely agree uh I think they're both, in their opinion, doing what they think is best. Uh, whether right or wrong, they don't see the wrong in it. Because I remember the same thing. I remember, you know, there was the big reputation, Louise Fletcher's Nurse Ratchet is the most evil person you've ever seen on screen and blah, blah, blah. And I remember even as watching it when I first saw it, she never came across as like the most evil person. But I think you hit it right on the head. Very fucking cold, very uh, clinical, just cut and dry by the numbers sort of, sort of idea. Where McMurphy is very selfish. He's very sort of out for personal gain kind of the whole time. I mean, even his buddy, his relationship with Chief and everything is originally for, you know, to help him get out. He ends up caring for all those people, but that's not his intention. He's very selfish and she's sort of very blind to what's going on in a lot of ways. I don't think there is a black and white yin and yang here. I I don't think so at all either. I think it's a very muted tone between the two of them. Well, it also helps that it's very naturalistic, which, if nothing else, like, the performances in this movie from everybody are so grounded in a way that fits perfectly for, like, 70s auteur-era filmmaking, 
which is a big credit to like Amilos Forman, who recently passed away a couple of years ago, but did such a phenomenal job with the style acting in so many movies from this era and afterward. Um, with like, uh, he's directed some of my favorite sort of biopics in their own way. With like, I love Amadeus and I love uh, People vs. Larry Flint, which doesn't get enough credit. I think it's a phenomenal movie that's kind of gotten forgotten. Um, and this movie has a lot of great shows, just like naturalistic back and forth. And it, you really feel the authenticity of especially a lot of the research was done at an actual mental hospital where this was shot. Like a lot of the actors shadowed people. I think particularly my favorite example is Danny DeVito, who was actually in the original Broadway play. Um, oh. And does such a phenomenal job. Like he feels like as Martini, he feels like a real person who has some sort of mental deficiency. By the way, I apologize to anybody. We're not psychologists. So if we, like, use wrong terminology or anything like that, we do greatly, sincerely apologize, not in our intent. But I, I just love the way that DeVito sort of depicts being someone who's, at the very least, very socially awkward and maybe on some sort of spectrum, as we would now define it. Um, especially the way he, like, interacts with Nicholson, like, during the card game and stuff like that. Where it's like, you're not, hit me, hit me. Like, no, you're not gonna. That's a queen, do you understand? You don't count the, count the little circle and the squiggly line separate. Hit me. What the fuck? <laughs> like, he's losing his mind. Uh, but who's your favorite sort of, especially of like sort of supporting cast? Uh, I mean, like you said, it, it, it is just a acting class on character actors in this. Not only DeVito and Dorf, but you got you know Christopher Lloyd, who's really good in it. And uh, I can't, God for, I can't, I'd never know his name, but the guy from Ghost and Vincent Chiavelli, yeah. Yes, he's really good. And again, you're going to have to correct me on this. But my favorite one is probably the guy, the very articulate guy. The Harding? The yes. William Redfield? The, yes. yes, yes. Harding, he's he's my favorite. Absolutely. Because he's, dude, some of the monologues he gives, I mean, he just goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes and goes. And it's a really sort of complicated speech, but he does it so well. And it's perfect for his character. I absolutely love his character. Especially the great sort of therapy session scene where people end up accusing him of being homosexual. And uh, Sidney Lassick tries to get on his side. Mm-hmm. And Harding has to tell him, like, don't get off my side. Stop defending me. Where it feels like he knows this is sort of like a thing he wants to piggyback on. Because he's also been dismissed by all these different patients. And he wants to kind of stick up for somebody. I love that it feels like you're really walking into a scenario where, like, oh, all these people know each other. Like, they've spent so much time with each other. They know each other's faults and great qualities. And they feel like a real weird community that's come together. They, it's almost like they have this false sense of family because they're all united under just not really tyrannical rule, but very um, regimented rule. It, it, they all play off each other so fucking well. But to get back to her, Louise Fletcher in this movie, God damn it, did she deserve every accolade she got. She is so fantastic in this movie. She, like you said, she is this, the epitome of this cold sort of woman to where you almost get the impression like maybe her life outside of work is very dull or fucked up or boring or nothing's going on. So she, she almost uses her position of power to like take advantage of situations and maybe, or it's not, maybe she just doesn't have any personality and her personality is being a cold woman and it's fucking just perfect. There's so many layers to her performance. I would definitely say it's probably more the former because I do see a lot of points where a lot of her emotions sort of like come out in like very subtle ways. I think there are even points where she's somewhat bemused by, you know, uh, the McMurphy character initially. You can kind of see it in the way that she like reacts to him in very small doses, like near cracked smiles. Like especially when he tries to do the thing about the music and she totally turns him down. And then later on when you get to like her being so pissed off after the big party scene that happens near the end of the movie. Just have a humanity to her, but she has to keep up this demeanor in order to, like, what she feels is, like, kind of keeping order. Like, that's what she has. And I do agree, she's so phenomenal in the movie, but it's not in a way where she is totally cold. You can see why she's cold in this way, because, you know, she has to, like, try and keep things together. She's literally trying to, you know, keep an asylum in check to some degree and it's not an easy job but she has respect for other people like her fellow colleagues like the various guards and nurses and other stuff that she there is a real humanity to her but it's definitely hidden behind a lot of walls yeah i absolutely agree i probably just said a little bit better than i was uh trying to but that's why you run the show uh, she's <laughs> uh, and while we're on the subject I don't know that I need a prequel show. Yeah, we should mention that in the time since uh, we recorded our last episode, the trailer came out for the Ryan Murphy show, uh, Ratchet, which will be starring Sarah Paulson, who's not bad casting at all. 
to play. No, I. Yeah, I think she's casting. Because it looks like it's very much doing the Ryan Murphy American Horror Story thing on Nurse Ratchet, where there might be, I'm sure, some kind of sympathetic, overdrawn backstory. But at the same time, what works about that character is you're introduced to her, and you get all you really need out of her from the perspective of these inmates. Like, you don't really need, like, this other perspective on her and this prequel story. Like, I don't give a shit. Yeah, I don't give a shit. Either one of two things is going to happen. Either she's going to get a prequel, or they, they really do lie on her being an out-and-out villain. Or you're going to see some traumatic thing that happened in her past that turned into the woman she is now. And I don't need either of those. I don't need the backstory for Nurse Ratchet. You really don't. Well, given it's a Ryan Murphy show, I'm sure it'll be very subtle and nuanced, and it won't have any over-the-top oh, elements yeah. to it at all. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. Michael Chiklis <laughs> is going to be in it. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sure it'll be like any Ryan Murphy show where initially it's kind of interesting, all the performers are pretty good, and then about midway through the season you get really bored and tired. <laughs> yeah, right, exactly. They're going to do, like, 1940s doo-wop versions of modern-day songs. It's just unnecessary. I, I don't understand. I mean, well, obviously... That's sort of the era we live in right now in television and movies. You take anything that might have worked, no matter the time when it did, and you just, you're going to redo it. You're going to reboot it, or soft reboot, or reimagine, or whatever the hell it's called nowadays. And it's just, it's unnecessary. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest, you want to see it different? Go find it on stage. It's always on stage. Well, at least... Was not right now. So when, when stages are around. Um, yeah. And it was interesting, actually, the initial person who sort of bought the rights to this and played the role on Broadway was Kirk Douglas, actually. And he was had the film rights and was going to make it from stage to film. Um, he never did it. So he gave the rights off to his son, Michael, who ended up producing this movie and getting his first Oscar for producing it. Yeah, I heard him on another podcast discussing the whole process of getting this. And uh, A, I never knew that before listening to him talk, but B... He was a huge champion of this. Huge, huge champion of getting this going. And, uh, I mean, good on him because, obviously, it has stand the test of time as a classic still. And so we should talk a bit more, obviously, about our man of the hour with Nicholson. This was the first movie they got him an Oscar, his first of three, because he won for later Terms of Endearment and then As Good As It Gets after that. What sort of makes this one of the definitive Nicholson roles for you? Well, you see shades of his performance in this later on down the road constantly uh, with the, the anger burst, the the slyness, the sort of charm, the charisma, the conniving, underhanded tactics that he uses. I mean, it's all there. And, you know, it might have been in there before this performance, but this is obviously the most prevalent and one of the most popular of his performances. So, and as we all know, when someone does something right in one thing, they're expected to repeat it. And uh, I, I think he's done that since his performance, but never just out and out. Uh, I think this is a very, very nuanced Jack Nicholson performance. He's not crazy over the top. He's not super unnerving. He's not goofy. He's, you know, he's not fucking anger management Jack Nicholson. It's a very realistic performance from Jack Nicholson. Like, he feels like a real person. Right, where even the over-the-top things that happen from him that feel the most sort of, like, caricature of Nicholson feel like they're part of the character. Like, when he's initially coming into the uh, the institution and he's going, like, Bugs Bunny levels wacky, where he's, like, kissing the guards and shit like that, because it's like, oh, he is wanting to put on the illusion that he is this crazy, but it's so over-performative, in contrast with all the other, you know, actual people who live in the asylum who are much more subdued. And just have, like, you don't really find out their quote-unquote craziness until you actually get to know them a bit more. And I, I agree with what you said earlier, that it feels so much like he's coming in here for selfish reasons. Like, even when he goes over to the chief and he uses him, say, to, like, put on his put him on his shoulders and play basketball and stuff like that. Like, you can tell he's using these guys so much, but he grows to at least be sort of interested. Like, the great image has almost become a gif of him, of, like, during that first therapy session when Harding and everybody's going nuts, and he just kind of has this, like, look on his face, like, I can't believe it. This is just, I, you guys, you guys and all your quirks, I can't believe it. And then as it goes on, you really get a sense that he has at least, like, a respect and a friendship, particularly... I love all his stuff with Brad Dorif, which this was an early Brad Dorif role, and he is phenomenal in this movie. Like, if you just know him as, like, oh, Chucky, all this other stuff, uh, sort of doing a Nicholson impression later on in his career. Here, he has, he's so much more subdued, and he plays off Nicholson so perfectly, sort of like a little brother, big brother kind of relationship um, uh -huh. that works so perfectly, especially... Like, he has that with all the inmates to some degree, but I love the sequence so much where they go off on the boat 
Like, it's reckless, it's weird, it's definitely something that shouldn't have been done, but at the same time, you see why he wants to do that to build more camaraderie with these guys. Even Not just with him, but with each other. You get the sense that's why he's really doing it, and um, it's it's just, like, it's this fun thing that has, like, a bit of selfishness because he wants to get out of the hospital, but also he has, like, this genuine interest in, like, getting them out there into the world, no matter how reckless it might be, just because they need to kind of, like, live a bit. And I just, I love, like, sequences like that and so many other things. Like, especially him and Chief also work so well together. Will Samson, who is, like, phenomenal. is this big guy who you don't hear anything from. And then the moment, like, the Juicy Fruit thing happens, he opens up a bit more. There's, there's so much where you can tell he has a sort of genuine interest in these guys that helps some of them, but ultimately destroys a few of them by the end of it. Yeah, no, I, I mean, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, obviously, unfortunately, what happens to Brad Dorif is not, of course, all his fault, but it's directly related to what he did. Mm-hmm. You know, and it, it's, and ultimately that's also his undoing as well because of his reaction to the consequences. So it's like he can't handle the consequences of his own actions, really. No, yeah, and that's, is that the part that really got you sad, Adam, when you were younger? Is that what really destroyed you? Like that whole Billy thing, or was it the ending? It's the ending. Mm-hmm. It's Chief. Uh, finding him in the bed. I mean, that's just that's just such a fucking clusterfuck. It, it, I don't I don't even want to talk about it. <laughs> it bums me out. It's one of those things. Like it's it's a really sort of dark ending. But I wouldn't really want to change it either. Like I wouldn't want this movie to be where they get out together and they go on a bunch of hijinks. Two flew over the cuckoo's nest coming summer nineteen seventy seven. But seriously, though, would you? I, I wanted, if that's how this movie ending, they would absolutely have done a sequel like that. Shortly after I watched this movie in high school, I'm like, oh, I got to read the book. And the book is very different. It feels much more satirical, and it's much more from Chief's perspective. It's all from Chief's perspective, as he's on like a lot of drugs. Almost feels like a weird fear and loathing kind of thing. They changed it from his perspective, which really pissed off Ken Kesey. But at the same time, it works so well to have Chief as this kind of like side character who doesn't emote a lot, but when he does, especially as he, like, slowly reveals so much more, like, the scene that I forgot about that really, like, screwed me up, honestly, in this watch, was when he talks to him about, like, you know, they they did something similar to my dad, and he ended up kind of, like, going on, you know, becoming an alcoholic. He died of alcoholism, and, you know, that just sort of screwed things up. It feels like it's, there's so much more nuance to that character that Will Sampson displays with, like, a real quiet but tragic subtlety. And then when it gets to that ending, it's so much more excruciating because he found a friend. He found somebody who he could really like engage with. And the fact that he, you know, has been lobotomized just like destroys him. And it makes that whole, you know, iconic ending of him using the water fountain to like get through the window and leave to where like, we don't know. He probably wouldn't have gotten that far, honestly, but it's still like that moment is so powerful. Yeah, no, absolutely, absolutely. And I mean, and you know, this the smothering scene, fucking hell. It's it's just ah, God damn it. God damn it, and you too. You fuck. <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those movies to where I honestly think if you put this on for pretty much anyone who hasn't seen it, they're not gonna think it's a bad movie. It might not be up their alley, but they'll understand it's a good movie. Uh, you might get people like me who seen it once and I didn't care to see it again. I mean, I love the movie, but I, it was just, it bothered me. But I'm glad I watched it again. And now I won't watch it again for another 20 years, you know, which is fine. <laughs> but it's just, it, it's just, it's damn near a perfect movie. The only thing, like I alluded to earlier, that for some reason, I just find it so corny that anytime Chief is on screen, there's like war drums and stuff. <laughs> you know, there's like Native American music. Yeah, the, the the score is very interesting, um, especially like it used a lot of theremin, which I found oh. to be fascinating. Like I agree that it's very stereotypical, and it's not maybe my preferred choice for a, a theme for Chief, but at the same time, it fits almost this weird thing where this entire group is like a weird symphony of odd instruments. They create this weird tune. It's a weird orchestra. Well, another one we just didn't talk about, another instrument in this orchestra that I find fascinating. Um, I love Scatman Crothers in this movie. Yes. Absolutely. As the lead sort of like guard, particularly when everything gets so screwed up and he knows there's ratchets kind of come back the way he just says, fuck it, man, fuck it. And then he just gets the fifth of Jack and just starts drinking. He does not give a shit anymore. That's a mood. This is damn near a a perfect film. It's not like Casablanca perfect, 
but it's right there. I mean, it's right, right there. Uh, it's got everything in it, and I, I, again, I hate you for making me watch it again, and I hate you for making me dissect it, and I hate you for making me feel. <laughs> you know, don't get me wrong, yeah, he might have won the Oscar two or more times, but I'd argue they're, this absolutely deserves to be in the, in the pantheon of not only great Jack Nicholson performances, but the great American actor performances of all time. Well, those sound like pretty good final thoughts, Adam, unless you have anything else to add. Uh, fuck you and everything about you. <laughs> well, I get that on a weekly basis when we record weekly. Uh, I, I agree with all of that. I, it's definitely one of my favorite of Nicholson's performances. Especially, I think, my favorite sort of this early period of Nicholson. Um, where this was a time when he was sort of really coming up as an actor. Uh, this really solidified him as like one of our greater actors of that time. And um, it sort of embodies everything that's so interesting about him, his wild kind of crazy man energy, um, his sort of weird selfishness that still at the same time has a lot of sympathy to it, um, and then coming to like a lot of tragic ends. But all the actors are so phenomenal. Milos Forman's direction is so good. Um, it is one of the great American films. I would definitely agree with that. And even some of its depictions of like sort of uh, mental instability to some degree, I'm sure are kind of dated based on this is from almost 50 years ago at this point. Uh, but it still has a lot of interesting themes that kind of resonate, particularly with just kind of, uh, you can't use one treatment to treat and every single kind of diagnosis that um, either way with Nurse Ratchet or McMurphy, um, it's it's not a catch-all for all these different people. They all need to be treated on an individual basis. But now um, we'll get to our bad feature in just a second. Uh, before that, though, here's an ESO show you can queue up right after ours. What will you do when your child asks? What were Saturday morning cartoons? What were Saturday morning cartoons? What's wrong with you? Or will you handle it the right way? Sit down, baby girl. Let me introduce you to my friend, Mark McRae. Join Dan Clink and I on the Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast as we take a unique behind the scenes look at the history and dynamics of animation with plenty of laughs along the way. The Best Saturdays of Our Lives podcast is a proud member of the ESO Network. And all right, here we go with our bad feature, Wolf. A wolf bit me. Not all who are bitten change. There must be something wild within. Never thought I'd meet a good man who looked at me the way you do. You don't know I'm a good man. So Wolf uh, came out in 1994, um, specifically June 17th, 1994, with um, one of the weirdest sort of um, director-to-cast pairings I think I've seen for a horror movie of its type, uh, given it's directed by Mike Nichols, who previously done like Who's Afraid of Virginia Wolf and The Graduate, um, the celebrated classic uh, director, and this cast is so stacked. Not just Nicholson, they seeming up with Michelle Pfeiffer, um, both of our movies, interestingly enough, have uh, various Batman villains teaming up together, <laughs> technically. Uh, given this is not too long after Batman Returns, um, and also you got Christopher Plummer in there, uh, David Hyde Pierce shows up, even in a very, very early appearance for her, uh, Allison Janney plays a party guest who's talking to Christopher Plummer, like, very early in the movie. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's, and uh, if you don't know this movie, it's kind of been forgotten from the 90s. Uh, basically, Jack Nicholson plays a publishing editor who's uh, sort of in the waning days of his career, who at the beginning of the movie gets bitten by a wolf and uh, starts exhibiting sort of these weird kind of heightened senses and some of this other stuff um, that makes him realize he's turning into a werewolf, while at the same time he's kind of butting heads with uh, Christopher Plummer, who's the guy who owns the publishing firm, and also this new hotshot played by James Spader, and uh, is kind of having a weird romance with uh, Christopher Plummer's daughter, played by Michelle Pfeiffer. It's a really weird movie. I'm surprised it got made in the 90s. Um... But Adam, this was your pick, and uh -huh. uh, why'd you feel that it kind of fit the bad slot, and how do you feel about it now, especially? You know, I didn't hate this movie when it first came out. I don't hate it now. I do think it's a very fucking weird movie, but I think it's got some charm and some quirks to it. But I picked it because, uh, exactly what you said, A, it's basically a universally forgotten film, and B, in the pantheon of Nicholson movies, there are bad ones that I want, would want to talk about. Uh, this is probably the top one. Because uh, who the hell wants to talk about, like, anger management or, you know, any of those ones? So that's why I picked it. And I, I still think it's kind of fun. It's not great. 
but it's fun. Yeah, I hadn't seen it before this, honestly, in full. I remember seeing at least bits of it. I'm like, what the fuck is this movie where he turns into a werewolf? This is weird. This is odd. And I still think that. And it's it's very uneven in a lot of terms where it's like, it's trying to meld basically like this werewolf movie where Nicholson's literally transforming into a werewolf. Rick Baker designed a lot of the makeup. Um, combine that with David Mamet style, like, workplace drama where people are going back and forth at each other. It's a lot of, like, cutthroat uh, stuff backing positions and, and in the firm. And also this romance with him and Michelle Pfeiffer that on paper, all this sounds like it would not fit for a movie. And it's like, if it didn't have this strong a cast and I think the stronger director, I don't think it would work. I think it's particularly with, like, the sort of Jack Nicholson-Michelle Pfeiffer relationship. It's obviously, like, a big problem in Hollywood in general of, like, oh, much older actor, much younger actress kind of thing, this romantic relationship. And on paper, it really shouldn't work. But the two of them have this weird chemistry where she seems totally into him. And okay. you can see why they would have this connection. And it feels like there's actual heat between the two of them in a way that shouldn't come off <laughs> at all. But it does, somehow. Oh, I absolutely agree with you, 100%. Well, and plus, he's on the outs with his wife. It's kind of, well, he doesn't realize sort of what's going on until after he gets his wolf powers. But um, it's it, it's it's just like I said, it's a batshit crazy movie that, for all intents and purposes, I agree with you. Without this cast and the people behind it, there's no way it would work. But as much as you know, the topic of the show tonight is Jack Nicholson. We gotta talk about James Spader in this movie. Oh, he's so great in this movie. He's such a piece of shit. He's such a piece of shit. And he absolutely steals the film. The, when he becomes the wolf, because Jack Nicholson bites him or whatever, so he starts becoming a werewolf too. He's so creepy and skeezy and, like, sexual predatory. Like, it, he's just really fucking amazing in this movie. Well, and especially even before that, he's doing, like, the, the sort of metaphor I guess they're going for is the workplace environment where it's so cutthroat brings out animalistic tendencies in these people. Um, it's oh. not a subtle metaphor, and it's definitely, like, it, it's kind of clumsily put together on a script level. But at the same time, especially the, the back and forth between him and Nicholson, where particularly Spader is totally trying to come off of, like, oh, I'm... I'm so sorry this is happening. You know, he's you're such a good friend to me. I love you, Jack. You're such a great guy. He's like, you know, goddammit, I'm going to go in there and, tell, and hand in my resignation right now. He cannot do this. This is unfair. And then you find out that James Spader is the one trying to get him fucking fired. Like, yep. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and then Jake Jacobs is like, as of now, you no longer work here. He's like, you cannot do this to me. It will ruin me, Will. Like, you motherfucker, what are you talking about? Well, and, and so much is just like, you know, you're the best thing for the firm, and then he finds out, oh, you're fired. Like, you can't just, I'm the thing that's best for the firm. Like, oh, fuck you, dude. And even down to the end, like, when he's talking to another weird cast person, uh, Richard Jenkins is the head of the police who's investigating the case. Oh, um, it is Richard Jenkins. I know, it's yeah. weird. Uh, but the two of them talking to each other, I had this affair with his wife, but I, he's such a close personal friend, and you know what, he he might have killed her, but it's temporary insanity, and I will testify in his defense and his trial, like, fuck I you, dude. No, he's such a fucking piece of shit, dude. Like, oh! <laughs> he's so fucking creepy. And when he's like, talking to Michelle Pfeiffer in the police station. And he obviously is like, knows that she's lying to him. Just the way he's looking at her and like smelling her and shit. You're like, Oh, this is so creepy and weird. And it doesn't feel that different from his earlier role. And the only thing you can tell is like, Oh, the eyes, the eyes start yes. to go like yellow werewolf eyes. Yep. Yep. And he's sweaty. I would recommend this movie to see a really good sort of, sniveling villain character and uh, James Spader is just perfect in this as that sort of character but on to the man of the hour uh, I do think Nicholson's good in this I think his character's kind of one note like there's not much to his character he's a big shot his wife's sleeping around on him he starts sleeping with somebody else and he, I mean yeah he's becoming a werewolf and all that but there's not a lot of sort of personality changes to his character no not really it just feels he's kind of using the Jack Nicholson charm in different directions rather yeah. than gaining or losing something. It definitely feels like they're just kind of really banking on Nicholson, which is a good thing to bank on because he's still oh, sure. so yeah. engrossing. And he really commits, like, I love, uh, even there are clever things in the script that he really takes advantage of, like when he starts noticing his senses, it feels almost like a weird 
like the blueprint for like a superhero movie that would come later of like him his superheroing where he can hear about the guy who's been like putting tequila in his coffee and stuff like that. He can smell it early on. Um, and just like that whole scene where he can like hear everybody in the office. And then as it goes along, though, we need to talk about the werewolf sequences in this movie are fucking weird. Like so odd where like he starts turning into a werewolf and he, like, starts running in the forest. It feels like a weird scene out of American Werewolf in London where he kills a deer. And then he, uh-huh. like, runs into some, like, guys who are trying to mug him. It's like, I got $1,000 in my wallet. He's half werewolf man <laughs> at that point. <laughs> oh, he's very, yeah. And like you said, he's very Nicholson-ing it up. Like, the, with the big grins and the, the little, like, heh. You know, little laughs and chuckles and shit. You can very much tell this is post-Joker Nicholson. In terms oh, of going. <laughs> I think what works about it, and I think this is a lot of like Mike Nichols' direction, is that it feels like they take sort of the weird office politics so seriously to where like when they go werewolf with it, they kind of know this is like a silly idea and they just really embrace it. Like particularly whenever they, him and James Spader fucking jump around during the climax when they're werewolves and it's just, it feels like, oh, it, so this is like the prototype for like later on when Hugh Jackman would jump in the X-Men movies as Wolverine. That's what it feels like. It feels like the early test footage of something like that. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a really good point. I didn't even think of it like that. Like, when he's on the fucking, uh, the gate, or the jail cell, or whatever. Right, for the horses, yeah. Yeah, where he's kind of, you're like, this, what the fuck, and this necklace bullshit that's happening. Like, okay, come on. But it's filmed really kind of cool. It's just a weird fucking movie. It's, it's sort of erotic. But at the same time, like you're like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, like this movie could have only come about during this sort of era where this is post Bram Stoker's I, Dracula, and there were a couple movies that tried to kind of play off like, oh, let's do some of these classic monsters, but more of like an adult thriller angle with it. Like Mary Shelley's Frankenstein was the same year, um, and there was like Mary Riley, the really bad Jack Jekyll and Hyde oh, movie. God about that horse shit fucking movie yeah <laughs> but this one i'd argue works better than any of those ones except for me obviously instead of coppola's dracula right as we talked about previously on the show yeah other than those than the other ones that came out around this era this one's because at least this one does something a little bit di- like it tries something different it's not just let's tell the same story but sex it up if you went full fucking you know lon cheney wolfman with the same characters the same story everything but then just made it sexy. It'd be stupid. Which obviously, you know, uh, Benicio Del Toro's version. Uh, fucking stupid. And boring. Like, it just... It, at least this one had the fucking, like, balls to go, yeah, whatever. Let's go nuts with this shit. Well, I I think the problem with, like, a Benicio Del Toro Wolfman is less about it trying to be sexy and more like, oh, we're trying to imitate the Universal monster. Because that was actually produced by Universal. And they were trying to go way more for a classic style in a way that felt kind of like we're just playing dress up and we're not really doing something that feels authentic as opposed to this it's not authentic but it's just kind of like going where it's like we're, we're gonna have this modern business politics story to ground it but we're gonna go really wild and crazy when we actually do the werewolf stuff um including down to in the time since we've done the show and Ian has passed away which was a bummer to hear um and this might be in a very eclectic like score career for him this might be one of his most insane where there's like a lot of saxophone and a lot of other yeah. weird shit <laughs> Yeah, for sure, for sure. But it's a cool score, too, though. It fits in tone with the movie. Like, that's the thing. Like we've said, this movie is so all over the place, like, tonally and what it wants to be and in a way. I mean, not. I mean, it knows what it wants to be, but I'd argue it doesn't really land on any of it. It's like just a weird mismatch that it's almost there with a little bit more tweaking. I think this would be held in a lot higher regard. I think the thing is, it's so uneven free from most of it, but the moment where it won me over to, okay, I like this movie much more than I don't, is with Lee James Spader at the police station scene. From then on, I'm really on board. This movie goes fucking nuts, even down to the weird werewolf fight and uh, the Michelle Pfeiffer ending, and apparently a lot of that was reshot. Like, this is another infamous case of, like, it went over budget because of, like, script problems and the cast salaries ballooned out, and the ending had to be reshot after, like, some bad testing. And I think that's kind of what is more the legacy of the movie than anything about the actual movie. And this is one of those examples where we've talked about plenty of times, like, big studio catastrophes, kerfuffles. This feels like one where it's definitely a kerfuffle and definitely has so many problems, but... Just because of the sheer talent involved, it makes it at least so fascinating to watch. It's highly entertaining. <laughs> and, you know, and the thing is, like, even like you said, the the makeup effects 
and whatnot. At the end, when they're going eye at each other and shit, like it looks brutal. The way they're yelping and the way they're all sweaty and snarly and fucking going nuts at each other. You know, I hate the ending stinger. I really do hate that. The the Michelle Pfeiffer stinger. I think it's stupid. But other than that, it's just, you know, it's a cool fucking little movie, dude. Right, that really couldn't have come out of any other time period for any of these people involved. It should be seen uh, maybe more than it is. If, if anything, just for a study of, you know, mid-90s Jack Nicholson. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, what the fuck was he doing? It's it's just a wild fucking movie. And like I said, of course, James Spader, badass. Chris, my boy, Christopher Plummer, Chris Plum. He doesn't really do much. And how do you feel about Pfeiffer? She's fine. I mean, I've always been a Michelle Pfeiffer. Obviously, like, of course, Batman Returns. I'm like, oh, my God, she's the greatest actress who ever lived. But, but like, I've always been pretty cool with Michelle Pfeiffer. Like, I don't, I got no problems with that. I think she's fine in it. I think the chemistry between her and her Jack is pretty palpable. Like, it, like you said earlier, it shouldn't make sense, but it totally makes sense that she'd be into him and that he'd be into her. Like, I think it works. I think she she absolutely works as sort of a, a fixed point object not only of affection, but to sort of used against each other sort of tool between these two fucking snakes. She makes the best out of a role that is very thin on paper on every single level. <laughs> it's very thin. She's always capable. I think she's good. It's just, you know, you got to figure you got Michelle Pfeiffer with nothing to do basically against a on Jack Nicholson, who is being Jack Nicholson, like witches of Eastwick, Jack Nicholson mixed with the Joker you know, like where it's just he's so fucking being just sly, cool Jack, and then you got a just a fucking chewing the scenery, James Spader. Uh, she almost gets lost in the shuffle, I think, a little bit, but she's still Michelle Pfeiffer, so you can't help but notice her. Yeah, I mean, it doesn't help also that they have to have a lot of sort of the machinations. Like you, we haven't mentioned much about uh, the Charlotte Randall, uh, Jack Nicholson's wife, who cheats on him, kind of angle. They manipulate that so hard for her to be having sex with uh, James Spader, just so Jack Nicholson's totally in the right in that scenario. Where just like it feels very plotted to be like, oh, we're totally gonna make it so it it totally makes sense why he would be with Michelle Pfeiffer here, and it's not weird and creepy because he got wrong. We'll we'll go along with this because these two actors do a much better job than anything in the fucking script did <laughs> with making this work. But let's go into our final thoughts, Adam. Your final thoughts on Wolf? Like I said before, I think it's it's a perfectly fine, fun movie. Uh, is it excellent? No, but I think there's enough here that you're gonna enjoy if you watch it. I mean, just for sort of the uniqueness and bizarrety of the whole the whole thing in total. Uh, I, I think it's it's a lost little gem. Not necessarily a gem in Jack Nicholson's career, because like we said, he, he's sort of one note Jack Nicholson in this. But even as it's like a, uh, you know, early to mid 90s sort of werewolf movie or a horror film, the way, you know, a smarter horror film or whatever you would want to call it. I think it's fun. I, I think it's great. I think it's anchored. Uh, by a lot of really good performances and character acting like you know like you mentioned richard jenkins but again james spader and my boy uh you know cry plea he's fucking fantastic <laughs> so, is, is that the fan community are you making a yeah. fan cam about christopher Plummer calling him cry <laughs> yeah, dude. yeah 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 <laughs> yeah it, it's it's a fine movie i think it's really fun it's it's got exciting points is there sexy stuff to it there's, you know, pretty good makeup effects. There's, you know, it's an intriguing little piece. Yeah, I think the best way to describe it is it's messy but captivating because you can't really take your eyes off watching it. It ends up being much better than you would expect, especially as it goes along, just with, like, going on board with this crazy sort of, like, weird mix of tones where there's, like, one minute you'll have Jack Nicholson mauling a deer, the next moment he'll piss on James Spader's shoes... Like, it's it's crazy how all over the place the tones are, and it shouldn't work. But somehow it manages to work so much better than you would expect it to, because Mike Nichols is that good of a director, and this cast is so stellar that they kind of take a weird, flimsy script that has all sorts of cliches. Like, we didn't even talk about, he goes to, like, the shaman guy, and it feels like straight out of every single werewolf movie of just like, oh, something is in you. Like, And not everyone turns when they get bitten by the wolf and all this other shit. All the stuff that feels so weird and cobbled together. Like this feels like it's a script that's been rewritten so many times. But yet it still manages to, like, to use another monster, Frankenstein itself together and work somehow despite all of the problems in it. To be, like we mentioned, not definitely lower tier Nicholson. 
movies or even like Mike Nichols or some of these other cast members uh, for to some degree, but still so yeah. festive. If nothing else, like I agree, Spader is so on point. It's one of his best performances in anything. 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 And that's saying a lot. It's James fucking Spader. But he's so good in this goddamn movie. So good. Yes. Uh, but that is the end of our two films for the evening. And we'll be doing our picking for our two films for next time in just a bit. But uh, first, we've got to read some feedback, because uh, usually on Mondays, we put up a feeler about, hey, what are your favorite, least favorite things related to whatever topic we're doing? We asked all of you about Jack Nicholson, and some of you responded here, like uh, James Rodriguez's Best, The Shining, One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, The Last Detail, and Batman. Uh, Mars Attacks and Witches Beastwick are also rather good. Worst that to be Anger Management. Uh, then Nate Thomas says Best, Cuckoo's Nest, Chinatown, As Good As It Gets, The Departed, and The Shining. Worst, The Bucket List, The Two Jakes, Wolf, and Hoffa. Uh, Emily Slade at Why This Film Pod says, uh, Best is Witches of Eastwick, There Are No Worsts. Uh, Everett K. Ross at uh, D-R-C-I-F-U-S on Twitter says, uh, Not exactly his movie, but the worst I could find via IMDb would be Tommy. It's a terrible movie. A good underrated movie would be Wolf, mainly because he peed on James Spader's shoes. And then Ryan Quarterman uh, gave us two different comments, uh, one saying, best The Shining, worst How Do You Know, and then another comment that said, uh, best How Do You Know and worst The Shining. That fucking guy. <laughs> what, a, what, what, a, what a joker, that guy. <laughs> um, <laughs> hey. No, I agree with most of that. Like, you know, obviously my, my brother, the thick-headed fuck, uh, <laughs> I... I you know, Wolf, I disagree, obviously. Uh, Hoffa, I don't think it's a great movie. I think he's fine in it, though. Uh, I think there's some good performances in it. It's not a good movie, but and I do, but I do agree with The Two Jakes. The Two Jakes is such a, just a fucking boring mess of a movie that didn't Which need to be made. Which was the sequel to Chinatown that he actually directed, one of his few movies he directed. Correct, and it's pretty bad. It is pretty bad <laughs> he's only directed like a few movies um in his career i did see recently in doing research another one of the ones he did uh going south which is the comedy oh, western right yes, uh, with like christopher lloyd and danny devito also in that it's the debut of mary steenburgen as well um it's not a very funny movie and it's kind of dull <laughs> it's incredibly dull not every actor needs to direct. No, he's, you know. he wasn't a very... And to be fair, he was only roped into directing in the first place because he was on the Roger Corman movie The Terror, which was an infamous movie that had like so much like stock footage compiled all this other stuff. And he actually Ooh. shot like the last couple days of production because the director left, so he had to be the director for like the last right. part of that movie. Did you see The Pledge? No, I have not seen The Pledge. It's... How do I put this? I want it to be way better than it is. Uh, and it should be way better than it is. He's like a retired police detective, or he's about to retire. He's a police detective. And like he gets involved in these missing children cases. It's like it's his last thing. That he's trying. I mean, but dude, the cast in it, I mean, it's like uh, Benicio del Toro, Aaron Eckhart, Helen Mirren, Tom Noonan. Robin Wright, Vanessa Redgrave, I mean, Mickey Rourke, the cast is huge. It, I want it to be so much better than it is. It tries so hard to be this, like, provocative thriller, and ultimately it's kind of just a bore fest. I will say, you know, in terms of ones that were good that were mentioned, I'm glad James mentioned The Last Detail, which I also watched recently and kind of in prep for the show. Have you seen that movie? I don't think so so if, if you're unfamiliar the the premise is jack nicholson and uh I for, i'm sorry i forgot the other guy's name but they're two navy guys who are taking randy quaid in his, one of his earliest roles go to prison basically they're taking him on a trip to from like one side of the country to the other and they end up kind of showing him like a weird good time the whole movie because well, randy quaid's kind of an innocent um and it's it's a phenomenal uh at least showcase for all these performers especially and randy quaid's weirdly very good this was at a time when he one wasn't insane and uh right. two was actually capable of being like a big lovable oaf like it feels sort of like a weird predecessor to his later cousin eddie character but much more sympathetic and sweet and nicholson almost feels like a surrogate dad character to him the whole movie it's a it's a really well done little character piece hal ashby did it uh very underrated kind of another one that's kind of been forgotten in the grand scheme of things. Yeah, I've never seen I got Now I want to check that out. And you know, what was mentioned uh, as well, like the Tim, his collaborations with Tim Burton were like sort of my introduction to him with like Batman, obviously, which sure, sure. is uh, such an amazing performance, but also Mars Attacks, which is my alternate choice 
and him in two very weird roles between the president and the weird casino owner. <laughs> They're just like him going full buck wild and so fun in either part. Oh, yeah, dude. Mars Attacks is great. He's probably my favorite part in it. Like, I love how cool and sort of collected he is as the president and yet has these outbursts of anger. But him as the fucking casino manager. Oh, my God. He's amazing. Well, that's the thing. He's proven he can kind of do anything. It's just, like I said earlier, where he, it almost got like Pacino-itis or even De Niro-itis, where everybody knows you for one thing, so that's all people wanted him to do, which is be Jack. And I think he's comfortable with being Jack. He, he's kind of more well-rounded than I think anybody gives him credit for. No, yeah, I think even later in his career, he had a lot of performances that showed off like he wasn't just this kind of manic and control character. Like, I think we have a bit of a disagreement on this particular movie. But I love about Schmidt, and I think he's phenomenal in that film. I think he does such a great job of playing a guy who's kind of a dick and does a lot of, like, shitty things, but at the same time has a lot of sympathy you can draw from the fact that he's realizing how much of his life he's just wasted being awful to people and how lonely he feels after his wife dies because of his, like, total alienation from everybody else. Um, I just, I, I think he's so fun, especially I think the ending of that movie in particular, he fucking just delivers one of his best, like, one-shot reactions to... The, the letter and everything. I love that movie. I only saw it when it first came out and probably expecting something different. So I, I wouldn't mind revisiting that one. I, I'll, I will give that one another shot for sure. And, you know, just another one to like, it's a bummer. One of his last movies is the bucket list, which was mentioned previously, which is such yeah. a saccharine piece of shit movie. It's so bad. It's like patch Adams garbage. It had potential to be something fun, but they just, they, Drop the ball on that one. Yep. And I mean, some other ones that weren't mentioned, like A Few Good Men is a phenomenal, obviously, like, you can't handle the truth. But that's such a great example of, like, Jack also working within an ensemble, which sometimes he can, like, overbear a movie. Like, even in Mars Attacks, it kind of has that, where you sort of choose and steal scenery. But that's a great example where everyone's on all aces. And I think it's just Aaron Sorkin's script and even Rob Reiner's direction there really works to keep everybody on, like, an even field of, like, oh, everyone's so fucking great in this movie. Like, even Tom Cruise doesn't get enough credit for being able to act off of him so perfectly in that movie. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, like, you know, Tom Cruise is Tom Cruise. But, uh, ooh, I do like. I think Tom Cruise is a very capable actor. But, yeah, I absolutely agree. I think, uh, yeah, A Few Good Men. Fucking hell. How good is he? And he, you know what it is? Like I said earlier, Jack Nicholson just has this inherent ability to just be super intimidating. And also super creepy, but also kind of endearing. To where, like, even A Few Good Men, you get why people would like respect him and listen to him not only be because of you know he's in charge stuff but and but he's making them do these kind of awful things and lie for him basically uh but you get why they would in a similar vein that's why i would say as mentioned by a few people witches of eastwick i think is such a great turn from him oh fucking hell that movie God, he's so, so good. Just your average horny little devil. I know, he's so fucking good, dude. That's like the perfect role for him. Yes, <laughs> just Satan. Like, of course he would play Satan, no shit. Well, of course he would. He looks like Satan. Well, like what you would think modern-day Satan might look like. I think those were all good choices. I I mean, for the most part, I, I would only, like, move one or two of those out of the bad to the, not necessarily even the good, but the decent. But, yeah, I mean... Like you said earlier, he's such a prolific American actor and such a huge part of people, you know, my generation, your generation's childhood because of the Joker. I mean, it was to the it's still to the point where don't be wrong. I think Heath Ledger just now eclipsed it of people comparing every other Joker to Jack Nicholson. And then Heath Ledger kind of eclipsed it and like, oh, was it the same with Heath Ledger? I still don't think Joaquin Phoenix has hit that part yet. I mean, I understand that was a huge movie, but I don't think anybody's going to be like. Yeah, it's going to be as Joaquin. I think it's kind of always going to be Heath now. But even before that, I mean, everybody was like, he's not going to be good as Jack. There's no way. Jack Nicholson, Jack Nicholson, Jack That, that was Nicholson. all the press when they initially cast him was just like, oh, my God, he, the guy from Brokeback, he's not going to do it. Like, a, He's so much more of a subtle actor. He can't put up the like levels of Jack. And he didn't quite do that. He just did something entirely different that worked perfectly for that movie. Really different. Yeah, it's the Joker, but yeah, completely different character. Yeah, but at the same time, like the, the that movie is so key to so much of like blockbuster culture with like eighty nine Batman and a big yeah. part of Nicholson's career up to that point. To the point, especially the infamous deal he did 
where he's just like, hey, I'm going to take, uh, you know, I'm not going to have a lower salary than my usual salary, but I want, like, the back-end Joker merchandise, like, cut oh, profits. still making money on. He never but, needs, you know, he never needed to work at, in the 90s again after that. He I'm, never did. Yeah. Well, same thing with, like, Harrison Ford and them. They never had to work again either because of licensing right to Star Wars stuff. And Indiana Jones on top of that, too. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, but, I mean, listen to our Patreon episode. You'll, you'll know exactly, if you're a patron, how I feel about Batman 89. That's true. And speaking of Patreon, we also might be talking about Jack Nicholson in the near future on the Patreon. Stay tuned for that. What? Put a pin in that. But thank you for all that feedback. We also want to thank a few other people like Chris Oliver for the intro and outro music used in our show. Listen to more of his music at chrisoliver.bandcamp.com. And thanks to Emily Scarter for the art for our show as well. And you can find us on Twitter and Facebook at DEDBPod, where we post those feelers and any news about maybe delays that might happen in the near future, um, like we did previously. Um, and you can also email us stuff, doubleedgedoublebill at gmail.com, all spelled out. And we talked about the Patreon a bit, and if you have at least just $1 a month to spare, we would recommend uh, maybe throwing that dollar our way if you can, because uh, we have a bunch of bonus content, like our Top 10 Summer Blockbusters episode that we posted right before all the horrible delays and technical issues happened. That was the last thing we recorded, and uh, that's up there for you to listen to now. And shortly, we'll be having another one for August with our trivia game. That should be a lot of fun. Uh, and speaking of Patreon, we also like do polls that end up choosing like you know specific movies we talk about or topics like this Jack Nicholson one. And I believe if I post it at the right time, you still have time to vote for our uh, choice for the bad pick for our upcoming Peter Jackson episode between my two bad choices of uh, the his King Kong uh, adaptation from 2005 and The Lovely Bones from 2009, uh, two very different films. <laughs> First of all, fuck you on those movies. But in hindsight, what else are you gonna pick? I mean, I could have like done a... two Hobbit movies. Would you want me to do that? No, dude, I'd quit. <laughs> I didn't want to watch another of those Hobbit movies if, again. If it's the first one, I'd be like, all right, I could watch that again because I still kind of like the first one. Then that's enough. No, yeah, we'll talk about them when you're up here, Jackson episode. Uh, but you can vote for which of those two movies that we do as the bad pick. And you can follow me at Not the Who's Tommy, where I post, you know, my thoughts and musings and such. And I also uh, do some writing at MarianiThomas.wordpress.com uh, for reviews and lists and all sorts of other things. And uh, you can find Adam roaming around the forest trying to kill some deer in his werewolf form. Uh, it's not really a werewolf form. I'm just a hairy guy. That's true. You're hairy and you like to be naked in the middle of the woods. And eat raw deer meat. I mean, it's a delicacy, I believe, in your neck of the woods. Maybe. I don't know. Probably not. <laughs> it's a deer tartare. That's what he loves yeah, to call ah, it. Yes. Ah, some dough tartare. <laughs> For more great cooking tips like that, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and all the other podcasting platforms. And, of course, if you're listening to us on the ESO show, you can listen to us and other great ESO shows on there. Uh, but you can also dig into our archives and find the earlier stuff we never posted on the ESO show, a solid 60 or so episodes, on our Podbean network. Um, and uh, if nothing else, if you can't subscribe to the Patreon or anything, if you just rate, review, or share the show around, that helps us a lot. That gives us more visibility and gives us more listeners to add to the the enclave of uh, double-edged double bill who have been begging for new episodes that are coming. Yeah, nobody's begging. They <laughs> should be, though. We want them to. Please beg. Please beg. We are begging you to beg. But now, Adam, it's the end of our show, and at the end of every show, we do our picking for the following week. And now it's uh, time for, you know, going from one of the most highly acclaimed, beloved actors of any generation to, I think... One of the more obscure topics that people might not be aware of at all. Um, why don't you explain what's our next topic, Adam, since you were a very big defender and wanting to do it? Oh, I think probably since, like, the beginning I've been talking about wanting to do this, haven't I? Roughly? Uh, roughly, yeah. It's been in the cards. Since, since uh, we started doing Halloween uh, horror-themed episodes, uh, we are doing the Charles Band-helmed Full Moon Productions, Full Moon Studios, who have given us such great... Sh Great cinematic masterpieces. I almost said shit. That might be telling. Uh, great cinematic masterpieces as the Puppet Master franchise or Dollman or Demonic Toys or Dollman vs. Demonic Toys. Uh, there are just several gems. Creeps, head of the family, they got them. Watch them. And it's an amazing streaming service, by the way. For $5 a month, it's a very, very user-friendly streaming service. 
Yes, that's kind of what spearheaded this was uh, the streaming service recently launched and you were kind of full bore about doing it. And um, I might have gleaned that streaming service myself and I might have uh, a lot of things to say when we do that particular episode. Um, But before we do it, we have to do our picks here. So you have the two good picks, given you're the connoisseur. Sure. Yes, yes, uh, the relative good picks, depending on who you ask. In my case, I have the two bad picks uh, for Full Moon. So uh, first I'll do the picking for yours, Adam, between 1 and 10, since you've assigned number between 1 and 10 for both your choices. So I'm going to do number 4. Well, at number 3, appropriately, uh, I have, you know, one that I, I would never think that I would uh, do and start a sequel for one of my picks, but I have Puppet Master 3, Toulon's revenge which i think is probably the best of the puppet master films okay yeah i've watched a lot of those puppet master movies recently during our break and i'll have a lot of things to say for sure about that but what was your alternative choice adam my alternative choice at number nine is the tim thomerson starring as jack death uh trancers the first one in that fucking fledgling franchise Right, they've, they've done a lot of different Trancers things. I have seen Trancers. That one is fun, though, the first Trancers, at least. I haven't seen the sequels. Well, because Tim Thomerson and Helen Hunt, they're both really fun in it. Yes, it's a very early role for Helen Hunt, and there's also a very um, depressing but kind of fun scene that involves um, a mall Santa that's <laughs> pretty awesome in that movie. But now, Adam, for my two bad choices, a lot to choose from. Oh, okay. Uh... Go number eight. Okay. At number seven, I had, um, you know, in the 90s, you had a lot of different superhero movies that kind of came and went. And this one almost was an adaptation of a particular superhero franchise, but had to change things last minute. Uh, but starring our beloved Jeffrey Combs, Dr. Mordred. <laughs> oh, yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> almost. Uh, an adaptation. It, it is Doctor Strange, just with names changed. We'll we'll get into that next time. Put a pin in that. But then at, on the opposite side of that spectrum, uh, speaking of Puppet Master and uh, the various toy-related ones uh, that Full Moon has done, I had Demonic Toys, uh, which is not as interesting as it sounds. No, that's that's pretty garbagey. I I mean, it's better than the sequel. Oh, God, no, that's a bad one, though. That, those are bad movies. Yeah, that's the thing. Have you noticed the pattern with the full moon features? Charles Band is really scared of dolls. I know, he has toys. a weird thing for toys. It's very odd. We'll talk about all that. Um, trivia, also, Demonic Toys, the start of David Goyer's screenwriting career. Oh, well, yeah, that makes sense, because he's done so much good shit. <laughs> uh, but we'll get into all that next time. Uh, and until next time, Adam... Um, I believe it's time that we uh, got out of here. Okay. <laughs> good, good night, everybody. has been a broadcast of the ESO Network. Be part of the crew and help support our shows by donating to our ESO Patreon or by shopping through Amazon.com or the Tee Public Store, which can all be found at www.esonetwork.com. The ESO Network, your station for all things geek. Geek.